Thank you, Gene. That was, uh, as always, it was great. I appreciate it. Brought, brought a lot of memories, good memories. Well, if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn to back to the book of Proverbs. You remember last week we started chapter 3 and, uh, of the book of Proverbs, and, and as I told you last week, it's probably one of the most practical messages that, uh, that you're ever going to get out of the book of Proverbs. And, um, you know, on the aspect of how to have the victory in your life as a Christian. And the victorious Christian life is something that eludes so many of God's people today. You know, they just exist. Uh, you know, God's people ought to, ought to be the most happiest, joyful people on the planet. And yet, in most cases, they're the most miserable and struggle with the most things in life. You know, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, that it talks about overcoming the devil. And in the Bible, overcoming simply means that when you get saved, you now have the ability to overcome the things in this world. And that's what we were talking about last week. I actually showed you the process, just a very simple way. You know, we're, we make things so much harder than they really are. And uh, we're just, we do that as human beings. We take something, you know, God's simple plan of salvation. <laughs> we make it the most complicated thing in the world. You know, when God wrote a Bible to it, you know, he gave it in sixth grade English that anybody could understand it, yet we take that blessed book and make it so complicated that nobody can ever understand it. And we do the same thing with the Christian life. You know, the actual process of getting through the issues in your life that, that we all have. There's nobody here today, certainly myself included, that don't go through the struggles of life and all the things that you have to deal with. And the overcoming in the Bible is the ability to get past those things uh, and, and live the victorious Christian life. Remember I showed you a couple of very important things that always need to be kept uh, in your mind about the problems that we have. And I started to show you the process of how a man or a woman turns around their life. And uh, we know this as, as repentance in the Bible. And repentance always requires that if you turn from something, then you'd have to turn to something. And, of course, that's, that's very important when you start to turn your life around. First thing I, I talked about, just as a brief, so you can put today's message in context with last week. First thing I talked about is that when a man or a woman starts to take uh, and turn their life around, we, we have to take responsibility for the issues in our life caused by the actions that we've done. Uh, we've caused these issues and by our own bad choices and, you know, it's unfortunate that we go through along in our life before we learn the great truth that life is about choices. And many times when we make so many choices, it gets very complicated. And then I, I showed you how that once a person tries to move that direction, that they must do the work. God supplies the tools, but uh, you have to do the work. I spoke down at the uh, turnaround here a couple, about last month, and I talked to them about life-changing things in my own life that, uh, and just tried to relate that their life is no different than mine. And, you know, I, I told them, I said, here you, God has provided a turnaround program for you. It's, you have people here that they're not doing this job because they're getting rich. They're doing this job because they want to see you. Uh, you know, succeed in life and want to try to help you through the mistakes that you, you have and you've caused in those areas. But I said, at the end of the day, uh, you're only going to get out of this program what you're going to be willing to put into it. And you know, that's true of church. 
It's true of the Bible. It's true of everything in Christianity. Everybody wants the victorious Christian life, but nobody's willing to make the investment that they do. And I'll, and I'll tell you this. This is such a true statement. And the longer I'm in the ministry, the longer I look at things and have a chance to compare things. I'll tell you, every problem that people have in churches or every problem pastors have in churches and the people that cause problems in churches, you watch every time. It's always people who make no investment in the church. They're always on that peripheral crowd out there, and they don't do anything. They're not involved in anything, and yet they are the most critical. And the reason for that is is because when you make an investment in something, you make it because you want to see it succeed, and you learn by your investment that we don't make things succeed by tearing them down. You make things succeed by solving problems and make things work the way that they should, making the investment. You know, the chapter showed us that the four basic essentials that we, we, we have to start with, and we studied them last week. He said, my son, forget not my law. Uh, he, then the second one was, in your heart, keep his commandments. And then the third and the fourth one is what we're going to focus on today when he said, let not mercy, and then he said, let not truth forsake thee. And, and then we saw that when we do these four things, when we, when we do it first, when we step out toward God, when we pick up this thing and says, Lord, I'm going to do the work, then God responds to that with seven things that he provides for you. And it's an incredible thing about God. I, I showed you last week, and if you didn't get anything out of last week's message, I would hope that you would get that one concept that God always get. when we start to do what's right, God always gives back to us more than he requires of us. And he does that to encourage us. He does that because he knows the road's hard. He knows that because we made bad. I mean, the Bible says that we have a high priest that, that can be touched with our infirmities. He knows what we have went through and, and what we're struggling with. And so when he sees his child step out, and you do the same thing as parents. You see your child do something that's right. You see him tell the truth when it was easy to tell a lie. You see him do something that's a good act or a good work or something like that. You, you want to encourage him in that. You want to take that and, and develop that. You want that to be you know, uh, something that they, they learn from and you encourage them. Well, you know, God does the same thing and he does that by always giving us more back than he requires of us to give him. And we talked about it last week, length of days. That's the joy of life, you know, a long life. That's the fulfillment of your life. Favor in the sight of man, how people will seek you out because they actually see God in your life. A good understanding in the sight of man, understanding human nature, being able to see why people have the issues that they have in life. Favor in the sight of God, you know, God's hand in your life, that you have the blessings of God in your life. A good understanding in the sight of God, knowing God and knowing about God. Know when God is in a circumstance or when God is not in a circumstance. And then the last one was peace in your life. And I showed you the difference between the peace of God and the peace with God. And all of those things we talked about last week. And then the last thing I, I talked about last week, which I think is where we're going to pick it up today, is I talked about the two compounding effects uh, in people's lives. You've heard me talk about it all the time, how that when somebody uh, doesn't do what's right and they start making bad choices and those bad choices lead to other bad choices, it would be one thing if all those choices were separate unto themselves, but they're not. They all connect to each other and they all compound on each other. What, for instance, what starts out smoking cigarettes uh, when you're 14 or 15 winds up to doing crack cocaine when you're 20 and you're 30. It compounds. What starts out with just a little bit of drinking here and there with the guys winds up you being an alcoholic. It compounds. 
Okay? One lie over here has to compound to another lie over here. It's the way it builds, and it's the way it compounds. And that's why so many people have so many struggles in their life that they simply cannot get past the things that they have to struggle with in their life. It's compounded now. It's so great. But there's another side to that compounding effect, and that's the good side. And that's when God takes the things that you do for Him and He compounds the good things in your life just like the world compounds the bad things in your life. You start making good choices. You start making the right choices. You start getting into church, getting into the Bible, let somebody work with you, get into Bible study on Thursday night, get the help that you need. Start making those right choices and you'll see that same compounding effect only for a good thing in your life. It'll accelerate your spiritual growth. I've told you many, many times that uh, the people in this church who are maybe farther along than some of the other people in the church who've been here relatively the same time, or the ones who come over and have questions and want to learn this, they take every class they can, they get everything that they can get their hands on and they start to digest it. The reason why some people get farther along and God uses them when compared to somebody else that maybe came in at the same time but they're still where they were when they came in is that compounding effect. God will take those things and he makes you better, stronger in everything that, that you do. Now, let's pick it up here in chapter 3 and let's read our text today, as it was last week, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll start to come down through this. He says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the tables of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and, and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We take you, Lord, ask you today to take our hearts and our lives and open them up, uh, Lord, and just pour in what we need to hear and what we need to see and understand. Help uh, some of these people, Lord, realize that they're only going to get out of Christianity what they put into it, and they have to put into it the way that God designed it to, to operate. Let this message be the second part, uh, Lord, of, of understanding how to get the victory in our lives. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name. For your sake we ask it. Amen. Now today we're going to focus on verse 3 in light of what we talked about uh, last week. And now we know the four things that we are to do first. Uh, we know now that they have to do with the inside of man, the inner man, uh, your spirit and your new nature. Well, now verse 3 gives us a closer look at, at how exactly you do that. And I look at this will be the second part uh, of that practical message last week. This will be a, a great other, another practical part of it that will finish out this whole verse. Now, look at verse 3. It says, <clears throat> Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the tables of thine heart. Now, the reason you take the things that he's talking about here, truth and mercy, uh, and you hang them around your neck and your heart. You know, the Bible always is specific in what it talks about. That's, that's just not some kind of, like, I love you with all my heart. Uh, like, you know, it, it's, not, it, it's more specific in that. The neck and the heart uh, are, very, uh, are a very practical teaching aspect in your life and my life. Uh, for a Christian, they are the two areas that we need to keep close to God. Uh, it's our neck and our heart. The neck will always represent our will with God. And so he's talking about that you want to take uh, you want to take these things that God has given you and you want to bind them around your neck. 
like a necklace, like something that you wear. And you're going to find in, in throughout the Bible, like in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, this was Israel's problem. Over and over again, they're told that they were a stiff-necked people. And a stiff-necked people is someone that, you know, as you carry it all through the Bible, it's, uh, it has to do with our will. It, the fact that we want to exercise our will over God's will. We want what we want, not necessarily what God wants. The Bible talks about a proud look. Along with a stiff neck comes stubbornness, a person who is unyielding to God. You find great examples of it in the Bible, and again, this is why I love the Bible and I love to study the Bible. Uh, you know, back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, um, and uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, uh, it talks about the, the firstlings of an ass. Now, in the Bible, an ass is a picture of an unsaved man. And uh, it's, a, it's a thing where uh, he tells you back there in those two passages that when the firstlings of that, that ass come from its mother, it needs to be redeemed with a lamb, see? Now, why does he do those things back in the Old Testament? Certainly did nothing for the ass. He's just as much of an ass before than he was afterwards. I mean, it doesn't really change the process of, of what he is. But it's a picture of something, you see. That ass represents an unsaved man. And that ass represents the fact that uh, the firstlings of it, uh, it, it's to have a, it's to be redeemed by a lamb. It's a picture of you and me as an unsaved person having to be redeemed by a lamb. That's the picture of it back there. And that's what it's an example of. And when a person doesn't do that, you know what they're supposed to do with that ass? Break its neck. Neck's always a picture of your will. It always is. There's two yokes in the Bible. You know, a yoke is what you wear around your neck. Uh, an ox would wear it around its neck and, and pull the plow. In the Bible, there's two types of, 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 uh, of yokes. One's that the bondage of this world that you wear around your neck that, that puts you in bondage and enslaves you. The other one is the yoke that Jesus talked about in the Gospels when he says, take my yoke upon you because it's easy. That's the ministry. And that's the uh, bearing the, 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 the cause of Christ, around, but it's around your neck because your neck will always be connected to your will. And when a person doesn't want to yield to God, they get stiff-necked and they get proud and they get arrogant and they get stubborn. And, and that's what it's dealing with. It's dealing it all the way. Hey, you see it all the way back in a time uh, in our country when uh, they still believed the Bible and the Word of God was still the Word of God and you had a guy that... Uh, uh, that, that uh, wouldn't obey the law, a guy that went against the law, a guy that was stubborn in his will over the laws of society, when he violated a certain law that required capital punishment, how did they kill him back then? They, they hung him. They broke his neck. It's all a picture of, of, of back then. They understood these things. And whether they saw the connection to the Bible or not, it shows you how that, that we as a nation, when the Word of God is, is, the, is profound in it and declared in it, that we do things by it without even necessarily understanding it. The second thing he says here is a heart. And the heart will always represent our attitude toward God. We've all seen people who are hard-hearted, cold-hearted, indifferent heart. At any time a person starts down those five steps that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the evil man that leads to his destruction, uh, it'll be the fact that he put his will over God's will and got the wrong attitude of heart toward God. Those two, the, the attitude, uh, those two will always go together. The, the will and the attitude of heart, wherever you find them, they'll always go together. And you remember, 
My will is all about me. God's will is all about him. And when I yield my will to God, then I do what God wants me to do. God's will is never about anything that you do. God's will is about who you really are and submitting yourself and putting these spiritual things in your life. But the two always go together wherever you find them. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, down around verse 13, 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is where uh, the nation of Israel goes into the captivity, the southern tribes. And uh, Zedekiah is the king. And it's a familiar story. And uh, Babylon had come down, and they let Zedekiah be a puppet king, but he really didn't have any power. And then right before the captivity, Zedekiah, he leads a revolt, or tries to lead a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, and it's severely crushed, severely crushed. And one of the reasons why that it got crushed is because Zedekiah, even though he wanted to throw off Babylon, he didn't want anything to do with God. And one of the greatest verses that shows the two of them together there is found in, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 36, 13, where it says, uh, Zedekiah, he stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart. Those two are always used together wherever you go in the Bible. And, of course, Zedekiah's end is, a, is the famous study of, of them coming down and taking all of his sons and daughters and, and killing them and putting his eyes out and then putting him in chains and carrying off to Babylon. I've seen that story and read that story a thousand times, and I never fail to see the practical application. That's exactly that happens with so many of God's people. They get to the place where Zedekiah got so far out in left field, he hardened his heart. It was his will against, over God's will. God sent down the man who was going to chastise him, but he, wouldn't, he, he tried to revolt against it in his own power and stayed against God. And you know what happened to him? He wound up losing his family and he wound up losing his eyes. What does that mean? It means he could not see spiritual truth anymore, got sucked up and carried right into Babylon. It's an incredible story, incredible story. Verse 3 says, hanging truth and mercy around your neck and over your heart. Now, as human beings, and particularly as Gentiles, we all do some of the same habits and form the same thing. I love to watch people. When you know the Bible and you have a good handle on the Word of God, uh, you really understand why people do the things that they do. And I don't ever say a lot because I do it too. We're all guilty of it. But, I, uh, uh, but I, I love it because Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we talked about this when we studied Romans. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, I think, are the great three defining chapters of, of, the, of the Gentiles and the Jews. And I've told you before that Romans chapter 1 completely defines you and I as Gentiles. Why we do the things we do, why we do them the way we do them, it's incredible. And in Romans chapter 2 shows us why the nation of Israel does what they need to do. And you're going to find that this is the fundamental reason why God told the nation of Israel, stay away from the Gentiles. The, G the nation of Israel did nothing that the Gentiles did. And every time they got messed up with the Gentiles, they always got into trouble. You know why? Because Romans chapter 1 tells you what you and me are like as Gentiles. Romans chapter 1 verse 23 says, the Gentiles have changed the glory of an uncorruptible God uh, into, the, uh, into the image made like corruptible man and to birds, and to uh, and the evil beasts, and the creeping things, and all of those things, and four-footed beasts, and all of those things. That's what Gentiles do. Gentiles have an affinity for taking things that, that uh, <clears throat> are always associated with animals. That's why back in the Old Testament, they, they were worshiping the animals instead of God. You go back in the Egyptians, you go back to uh, the Hindus, they're all worshiping animals in some form. That's what Gentiles do, see, 
And we see it today. We just don't make the same thing. If you went over to Israel and looked at their sports teams, uh, I don't know what they call their sports team, but I guarantee you it wouldn't be connected with animals. They probably call them the Uzis and the Galeos. I don't know. But they, but they, but they, but you come to America, Gentiles, it's the Bears, it's the Dolphins, it's the Eagles, it's the Seahawks, it's the Jayhawks, it's the Mules, it's the down in Pitts, someplace in Canada, they're the Gorillas. Where's that at? Where? Pittsburgh, Canada, they're the Gorillas. I bet there's some big ball players down there. Anyway, and you got the Tigers, you got the Panthers. You see, that's what Gentiles do. And that's the pattern that we set down. We all do it. You see it in everything. One of the things that we love to do, we all do it, is we wear clothes, jewelry, shoes, hats that, that has a message on it. And we, always, we all do it. You never see that in the, in the nation of Israel any way, shape, or form in the Old Testament. I mean, they may do it now because they're in apostasy, but not back then. And they got that from Gentiles. And we're Gentiles. Now, I'm not preaching again today. I'm really not. I want you to, I got a point I want to make here in a minute, but I want you to, this is just the way it is. I'm stating a fact. I mean, you see it on T-shirts. The logos, the schools, the sports teams, guys' favorite beer, you know, Budweiser, Miller Lite, Heineken, you know. You see slogans about God. You see slogans against God. You see, you, you see, I was up the gym. You'll love this one. I was up the gym the other day, and a certain individual uh, had a T-shirt on that says, Jesus is a bodybuilder. Now, this kid's a bodybuilder. And, you know, and he, he had a T-shirt, and I said, Jesus is the bodybuilder. I didn't say anything, but I'm sitting there, you know, building my body very slowly, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, now that's it right there. That's exactly what Gentiles do. He wants to be a bodybuilder, spend eight hours a day in a gym, look at himself in a mirror, watching his muscles bulge, so to justify it, Jesus has to be a bodybuilder. And I said to myself, Jesus was never a bodybuilder. Jesus is a character builder, see? But you couldn't do that if you put Jesus as the character builder. But that's what we do. I, I, I think it was Bubba one time. Remember about me? I think it was you. Uh, four or five years ago, I found that I'm a pitcher on a softball team. Great demand at draft time. Anyway, <laughs> I found the neatest, remember the hat I found, Bubba? The neatest pitcher hat I ever found. It was blue and white, and it had mesh across the back to keep your head cool when you're really out there in the field tearing it up. And it had a, it had a, it had a, a slogan on the front that says, number one pitcher. Well, I'm thinking, that's me. So I bought that hat, wore it for two seasons, and Bubba pulled me aside. I think it was Bubba pulled me aside one day, and he said, that's a nice hat. And I said, yeah, number one pitcher. And I didn't see the motif behind it, but it was number one pitcher of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't wear that hat anymore. <clears throat> you see it on sweatshirts. My favorite sweatshirt I saw one time is that they, they, a guy and a gal, I guess they were husband and wife, and they both had black sweatshirts on, and she, he was over here, she was walking over here, and it had a slogan with a sign, or an arrow pointing toward him, and it says, I'm with stupid. I thought that was a good one, see? We get messages out, things like that. We like it. We like it. You see it on hoodies. I mean, uh, all the slogans. You see it uh, in, in the jeans, designer jeans. Designer jeans are designed... Because when you wear designer jeans, it puts out a message. You see it all the time. You'll see Wrangler jeans, or I don't remember what they are, Wranglers, or uh, what, and what do they do? You watch them on TV, and, and what do you see there? You see Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Brett Farr, and they're wearing relaxed jeans, and they're throwing the ball, you know, and all that thing. You know what you do? 
You go out and buy yourself some Wrangler jeans. And you, and you walk, you know why you do that? Because you want to be like, who doesn't want to be like Brett Favre or Dale Earnhardt Jr.? That's what you do. Calvin Klein. Who doesn't want to be like Calvin Klein? When a style comes in, it's Calvin Klein, you get those. When it's Gucci, you get those. If I ever see any of you guys wearing Gucci jeans, I want to talk to you. But that's what we do. It, it, it expresses who we are. You go in there, and now you can get boot cut. You can get straight. I don't think gays wear those. You can get straight. You can get relaxed fit. Uh, sir or ma'am, uh, you'll have to put those back. <laughs> you see it in the cars we buy. None of you guys go deer hunting in a Volkswagen band with love and peace signs all over it. You get a man truck. It's a Jeep thing, see? Four-wheel drive. It says something about us. We want to associate with it. That's what Gentiles do. That's what they've always done, always done. You see it in, you know, you see it in jackets, KU, MU, Nebraska, Kansas City Chief, the Royals, race car drivers, Jimmy, like I said, Jimmy Johnson, Jeff, all those guys. We, I was at the veteran thing a couple of weeks ago. You see it on hats. Everybody vet there had Air I had an Army one, Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, Navy. People like to associate. So they buy things because that's what Gentiles do. We express ourselves. You see it in shoes. You can buy Nikes. You can buy New Balance. You can buy Air Jordan. And some of you guys buy Air Jordan because you know white men can't jump. <laughs> so you buy them, see? And now you think you can jump like Michael Jordan. It's incredible. I had a guy one time that was upset with us at a church. This is a couple of years, four or five years ago. And he, because we, we had our kids prayed up in, in a Halloween costume, and he thought Halloween was of the devil and all of those things. And he says, well, you're, you're, you're teaching your kids to, he's teaching your kids to, to, uh, uh, to, to worship the devil and, 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 and bringing all that stuff in and it's all false gods and it's all not true and you're allowing your kids to do that. I looked down and he had a pair of, he had a pair of, uh, of Nikes on, you know, with the, with the thing on it. I said, I like your shoes. He says, yeah. He said, thank you. Uh, what about the Halloween? I said, what about your shoes? I said, what do you mean? I said, they're Nikes, aren't they? Yeah. I said, you know Nike was the god of victory in Greece? I mean, how dare you criticize me for Halloween but you'll wear a pair, of, you see, there's the god of victory on your feet? I said, what day is it? He says, it's, it's Thursday. I said, that's a, I said, you know every day of the week was named after a Roman god? You know tomorrow's Friday? That's Frela. That's the fish god. That's why Catholics eat fish on it. Saturday is Saturn Turnus after Saturn. Sunday is the Sunday for the sun god. I said, when you throw all those out, then you come and talk to me about Halloween. And then we'll get into Christmas and Thanksgiving. You know why they don't sell? You know why? We're the only ones in America to celebrate Thanksgiving with a bird. You know why? Because he says Gentiles take the glory of God and make it into a creeping thing, a, f- a bird. And then we make it into a man, Santa Claus. That's what Gentiles do. That didn't start with the Jews. I'm not preaching against it. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. <laughs> Size 34 waist, 15 and a half shirt. I'll be 17 and a half shirt. I'll, bring me a gift. I'm all for it. I like North Face stuff. I like Columbia. You work for Eddie Bauer. You love Eddie Bauer stuff. You know why I like North Face? Because you walk in there and there's this guy dressed up as an expedition on top of a mountain. I want to be that guy. 
So I buy me a North Face jacket. I walk around, people think, he's a mountain climber. <laughs> North Face. <laughs> we all do it. Don't be laughing at me. We all do it. Sports teams, you got the Chiefs, you got the Royals, you got the Wizards, you got MU, you got KU, everybody's got it. Now, these companies make billions and billions of dollars every year because they put somebody out there that's famous. We want to be like them. Notice I didn't say you. We want to be like them. So we go buy it, and then we wear it around, and then people see it, and they say, I want to be like you because you want to be like him, and you want to be like him, and everybody buys it. And that's what makes the economy go. Preachers do the same thing. You have the Roman Catholics that the, the, the priest, he wears a special suit of clothes uh, with a white collar, and we criticize them all the time. But Baptists do the same thing. I know Baptist churches today that if you don't wear a suit and tie on Sunday morning, and he would never think of getting in a pulpit and preaching without a suit and tie on. That's his badge of his godliness. I knew a pastor one time. He's a good friend of mine. I love him to death. and he's always, But we laughed about it. He was so messed up on the fact that he would, I, I think he sleeps in a three-piece suit. I do know this, and I asked him, because I heard the rumor, and I was with him one time in a Bible conference, and we were driving back and forth together, and we were just talking, and I said, I said, brother, I got to ask you something. I said, tell me the truth. We're buddies. I said, I don't care. I just, I just got to know. I said, somebody told me that you were on a ski trip out in Colorado with a bunch of pastors, and under your ski suit, you wore a three-piece suit. I said, tell me that isn't true. Dead silence. It's always a bad sign when you ask somebody a question in a dead silence. After about 10 seconds, he looked at me and says, Bob, I'm as boring as puke. <clears throat> he said, yeah, it's true. And these guys associate it, but that's what we do. They associate with, with wearing a suit, that, that that's a, your badge of God. Hey, you're not any holier than what's on the inside of you today. Amen. I mean, you can put a tuxedo on a pig and you're still a pig. Amen. But that's where we come from today. We're Gentiles. I love it. I, I, I mean, that's just the way we are. It, it's just the way it is. I mean, I'm cool about it. You're cool about it. Hey, be cool. I'm cool. You be cool about it. I'm not preaching on anything. Now, I'll tell you something else. Go to the next step. You want to see that. This is why people get tattoos. Now, I'm not preaching on tattoos. I'm not. I, 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 it's none of my business. I don't care. But I want you to know that, that that started with the Gentiles with the nation of Israel. Leviticus chapter 19. There was four things the Jew were told to do. Four things the Jew were told to do to be separate from the world. They had to be circumcised outwardly. That's a picture of our inward circumcision. And then it was their hair had to be cut a certain way. Their beard had to be cut a certain way. And they had to have a certain diet. And that set them apart from the rest of the world. It's a picture of you and me. And he tells them in Leviticus chapter 19 that they're to make no cuttings on their body or no marks on their bodies like the Gentiles were doing. It comes from the Gentiles. Now, I don't care if you got one. I, I did. Mal Sabaka, my father, Lord, had two of the greatest tattoos on his arms when he got when he was in the army that you ever saw. I'm not preaching against it. I want you to understand my point here. But we do that, and we, we do that because uh, we want to get out a message. I know it's a personal preference. It's none of my business. I, I mean, you know, you watch some guy play a football, and he wears, he, he wears his hair in those, what are they called? Dreadlocks, dreadlocks. I have my hair in dreadlocks this morning. He's just so small you can't see him. 
So what does everybody do? You walk down to the plaza. Everybody's they're there. Bread rocks. I mean, I mean, they're hanging down. It looks like that that predator guy. You know, in the movie Predator, he had them. We do things that way because we want to associate with something. We're all guilty of it in one way or the other. I mean, we've all seen ball players do this or wear this or do that, and it's cool, so we do it. When I was in the Army, our whole company wanted to get a specific tattoo uh, on our, our arms so we would all be cool. We never did because none of them were ever sober enough to ever get it done, but we, we wanted to. I understand it. I'm not fighting it. But let me, let me just digress here. I don't care if you get one. I just want you to understand where it comes from. You're free to do whatever you want. But I give you a little father advice this morning. I mean, they are permanent. You wear a I love Jesus shirt and you screw up, you can take the shirt off pretty quick. But you're stuck with a tattoo. I mean, if you're going to do it, I'd say think it through. I mean, uh, they, uh, I remember we were down in, uh, when we went to Ohio, we went down to uh, uh, Sugar Creek, which is Amish country, and there's a little antique places down there. We always eat breakfast at this Amish place. And Amish are very straight-laced people. If you're a Mennonite or you're an Amish, you know, most of them ride buggies. There is a group of them who are allowed to have cars. I stayed with a family when I preached in Pennsylvania years ago, which is big, uh, that country. And, uh, they, uh, and I was running every morning, and I get to see them and talk with them. You know, nice people. A little inconsistent, but they're nice people. And I was talking to a guy one time, and he, he, I said, I, he says, I thought, I said, I thought you guys weren't allowed to have cars. And he says, well, there's a, there's a certain sect that can, but we've got to take it into the, to the pastor, and he has to deworld it. Got to take all the chrome off of it. And, I, and he told me all the stuff they had to do so it didn't look like the world. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the stupidest thing in the world. You take all the chrome off so it doesn't like the world because you don't want to be worried. It's got an $8,000 computer system on the inside running a car. They have no phones in their house. And I say, you have no phones in your house. And I looked up and I saw phone lines going into the barn. Them cows are making some long-distance phone calls, I want to tell you. You see, that's how you get around it. I can't have a phone in the house, but doesn't say I can't have one in the barn. That's how we do it. I love it. I do it. You do it. Be cool. I'm cool. We're all cool. That's the way it works. <laughs> we were down there to eat, and this waitress was working around there, and, and she was a lady probably in her 40s, and nice lady, good waitress, and I'm checking, eating there, you know, and she walks by, and she, she had a big, big bandage on her leg right about here, and I'm thinking she's hurt, and I was going to ask her what happened to her leg, you know, just being, you know, call you back, put her on the prayer list. I don't know. You know, I was, you know, and, but then I looked down, and it, she had a tattoo on her leg. And the Mennonites wouldn't let her work there with her tattoo showing. So she had to go to work every day putting a big ace patch on her leg so nobody would see the tattoo. That's stupid. <laughs> Dumbest thing in the world. You got it, wear it. But you got to be, think it through. I mean, before you go out, I mean, maybe you got to get the ones you put on with water. <laughs> I mean, most of them are okay. I know some of you get the little, little, little things, you know. I think some of them are cool. I'll be honest with you. My wife won't let me get one. But if I, if I could, I've seen some of the ones I like. Those barbed wire things around your arm, I think that's real cool. My problem is every time I scratch my head, I'd break the wire. I'm for it. But I'd say be a little careful if, you get, if you're 19 years old and you get a big heart and it says my heart belongs to Jane because 20 years later you may wind up marrying Janet. Then what do you do? Leave enough room so you can put one, two, three, four, and five and scratch the top ones out, I guess. I don't know. 
only date people that the names can be changed from what it was to what the next one will be. You know, make an A into an I or whatever you got to do. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But that's what Gentiles do. I mean, we just do it. I love mom's pretty safe. But you know, a guy gets married four or five times, what's he going to do? I can come back and bite you. Every time your wife wants to get mad at you, she's not going to look you in the eye. She's going to look you in the tattoo. And whoever Jane was way back when you're 19 is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Think about it. I'd never have Bible purses put on my body. I never would. I, I never would. I mean, you're hung yourself at that point. I, I knew a guy one time. I can't remember what it was now, but across his back, he had John 3, 16 or Romans, whatever it was. And I thought to myself, that is the stupidest thing in the world. This guy was the biggest drug addict, the biggest fornicator you ever saw on the planet. Wow, what a testimony that be to the cause of Christ. I mean, if you wear a shirt, you can take it off if you mess your life up. But that's what we do, see? And when the Bible says truth and mercy around your neck and over your heart, he's not talking about that. But we all do it. When you see a Christian wants to portray it out, you know what he does? Uh, he, puts a, he hangs a crucifix around his neck. They'll get the little fish pins that you always see. Uh, those little six stars, those six stars, Dave, star of David, they'll wear those. And they walk around and say, I'm a Christian. And I get it. I'm not, I'm not fighting. I'm not preaching on it. I'm not. You see a little dove pin type of the Holy Spirit of God. Wear it on a chain around your neck. Wear a little crucifix around your neck. It's human nature. I'm not going to try to change it. I understand it. I don't care what you do. I understand it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's between you and what you want to do. Uh, But you need to be careful with some things and understand that it isn't adorning your flesh with anything that makes you spiritual. That's human nature. I got it. I got it. But that's not what Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 was talking about. Or Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 where it talks about the instructions of the father and the law of the mother that they're worn as an ornament and a chain around your neck. Something different. I mean, I, I, I never, I was one time I, I was with a, a, a pastor and his wife and she had a, a little star David around her neck. And, you know, telling she wanted to be associated with Christianity. And I didn't really think anything about it. And, and uh, she, she's looking at me and she's saying, and we're in, a, we're in, a, in fact, we're on a, a, a train car riding someplace. And, and her husband was sitting here and, and a couple other people were sitting there. She said, we're having a conversation. And, uh, and it was her birthday a couple of days before. And I said, well, I said, happy birthday. And I said, did you have a nice birthday? She said, yes, my husband bought me this Christian Star of David. And I didn't even think about it. You know, I just, I don't think in terms like that. And I said, that's not the Star of David. That's, that's the star in Acts chapter 745, the star of Repham, the God of Israel, when they got out of fellowship. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. She didn't talk to me the rest of the trip. <laughs> She wanted to believe that there is a star of David in the Bible, and she wanted to believe that that six-point star is, is what is, represents an Israel, and she's a spiritual Israelite, and so she wears that. It never occurred to her that that was never in the Bible. It comes out of Israel in their captivity, and as Acts 7.45 talked about the star of their god, Repham. That's the star. I don't care if she wears it. You see those little fishes. And people got them on the back of their cars. They want you to know they're a Christian. We think they put them on because they're going fishing. <laughs> they want you to know I'm a Christian. And the story is back in the early days of Christianity that when the Christians who were severely persecuted 
wanted to have a meeting, that's what they did. They put the shine of a fish along the wall, and everybody knew that that's where the Christians were going to meet that night. Oh, it's wonderful. That fish comes in in Constantine in 313, 325 A.D. It's Dagon, the half man, half fish, 1 Samuel chapter 5. I don't care. You want to wear it? Wear it. You want to wear the dove pin? Great. You want to wear a crucifix? That's a Roman form of capital punishment. Bible says in Galatians that the, who crucified on a, a tree is cursed. I just thank God for your sake he wasn't electrocuted. Be tough wearing an electric chair around your neck on a chain. Or shot with a rifle, M16. I don't care. I know why people do it. But this hanging of mercy and truth around your neck is different than what the Gentiles do. We Gentiles take Christianity, we want to make it into a symbol, we want to make it into something, and we want to wear it on the outside so everybody will see it. I'm not fighting it. I'm not telling you to throw your this away or throw that away. I'm just telling you that real spiritual-led Holy Ghost relationship with God has nothing to do with what you wear on the outside. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjections to your husbands, your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by your conversation by the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it be, here it comes, let it not be that outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair and the wearing of the gold or putting on of apparel, outside, you see, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament, there's what you wear, of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is a great pride. It's inside. The things that we wear, these ornaments, these truth and mercy we wear around our neck, these ornaments that are like chains around your neck over your heart, it's on the inside, not the outside. The mercy and truth uh, of your heart is, a li- is not a literal thing. It's a spiritual application to your will and your attitude of the principles of God in your life. Now, the charismatics always take this verse and they tell women that <sighs> there's some really radical people out there that believe that, you know, that women should not wear makeup. And they tell you, you don't fix your hair, you don't wear any makeup because the, they take this verse. They never see it. They don't see much out of the Bible, but they, from, and you see the women fall right into it. And I, I'll tell you, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's the truth. We're preaching the truth here. I'm just telling you about it. If you've ever, I mean, charis, some, the real, the real, the real rank charismatic people who follow this stuff, charis, those charismatic women are the ugliest people in the world. <laughs> and I don't mean that nasty. That's the truth. They're not allowed to wear any makeup. They can't fit. You all see them. They all look. They got their hair in big buns. And they got a straight thing. They wear white socks with, with, with low flat shield. They can't wear any high heels. They can't put anything in their hair. They can't put any makeup on. They can't wear anything that doesn't look like a feed sock. They gotta, and they got to wear everything that way. And I'll tell you what. I, that, that's not what the Bible's talking about. I had a charismatic pastor with a friend one time. We were at a preaching thing, and I was just listening. I wasn't preaching. And... Uh, and, his, and his, he brought his wife to everywhere they went, every conference, every this, every that, every thus, every Bible study. She was with him every time. 
And they were sitting around there, and I was eating, and they were eating, and the men were over here, uh, and the women were over here, and one of the other ladies' pastors uh, looked over, and she said, I want you to know, I think it's the most wonderful thing in the world that you take your wife everywhere you go. My husband won't do that. I think it's the sweetest thing, the most greatest thing that you ever saw in your life, and I want to commend you for taking your dear wife everywhere you go, and my husband could learn from you. Well, she turned around and ate her food, and the husband, you know, you're looking at the other husband, and he's saying, I'm sorry, and he leaned over and said, it's all right. The only reason I take her everywhere I go is she's too ugly to kiss goodbye. (laughs) I'm telling you, man. Now, you got to have a balance in the thing. I don't know if he meant that or not, but he said that. (laughs) you got to have a balance in the thing. I mean, you want to, I, I follow this. When a woman or a man dresses to please the Lord, whatever they have on will do what's be perfect. I've seen women come to church before that look like they missed the bus to Independence Avenue. <laughs> now, my point is this, and I, I'm sure you're wondering if I had one to all of this. <clears throat> but my point is simply this. You can wear 100 crucifixes around your neck. You can get a 500 dove pins and 300 fish pins on necklaces or pins or whatever you want to do it. And you can wear as many Star of the Davids on your chest that they think you're the sheriff. You can have your whole body tattooed with Bible verses if you want. That doesn't make you spiritual in any way, shape, or form. It just doesn't. You see, here's the bottom line. Got to understand Gentiles. It's easier for us to wear a cross around our neck than to bear the cross of Jesus on our shoulders. There it is. It's easy for us to put on our religious costume, like pastors do. It's easy for us to put on our religious regalia and wear it around so everybody knows we're a Christian than to change your life and let everybody see what's really on the inside because what's really on the inside has come out. And many times we wear the stuff on the outside, the master stuff on the inside. I mean, that's human nature 101. That's how it works. That's what this book of Proverbs is all about. Now look at verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Now how does that happen to a Christian? There are people out there that probably would say, well, that can't happen to a Christian. Well, you know, I I don't know what to tell you. The Bible says it could. It said, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. How does that happen? Well, it happens two ways. Mercy and truth will leave us as Christians because they are based on your will and your attitude, and that is determined by uh, what you do with the book, the truth. For a church, for a Christian, losing God's mercy and truth is never about losing your salvation. There's two aspects to it. It's not like the word faith. Now, the Bible says, and we all know, that we're all saved by faith. Are we not? Amen? Amen. Do we all walk by faith? No. No. Does that mean you lost your salvation? No. It means there's two different aspects to faith. There's a faith that saves you, and then there's a faith that you put into your life after you get saved that carries you through every day. And a lot of people, anybody who (coughs) truly gets saved, (coughs) gets saved by faith. But that doesn't mean they always live by faith. And true, truth and mercy is how you get saved. But after you're saved, they're not always in your life, and you can lose that in the aspect of a Christian. And we'll talk about what that means. It's about losing God's hand of 
Uh, two things about it. First of all, it's about losing God's hand of preservation in your life. God's mercy as operates in our lives in a very shallow, narrow corridor of God's truth. It's so narrow that it's called in the Bible a pathway, a path not very wide. And that's why the Bible calls it the path of uprightness. Some places you'll find a path of righteousness. In Jeremiah 6.6, 6, 6, 6, the Christians were told, or Israel was told to get back, 6.16, the Christian, or the Old Testament, the Jew was told to get back to the old path. And when you get off that path, then you're on your own. And today, what Christians have done, we didn't like that narrow path. Remember what the Bible says? Over there in seven, uh, Matthew 7, 13, it's just straight is the gate and what? Narrow is the way. It's a path. And we don't like that today. We don't like churches like this because we preach too narrow of a corridor. You don't want God's path of uprightness in your life. No, you don't. You know what you want? You want a turnpike. You want an expressway. You don't want that narrow path of truth that you have to relegate yourself to. You want a four-lane divided highway. You want all the latitude in the world to move around. You can't move around on a path. A path is narrow. A path is very enclosed. You can't get off that path without getting into the woods and getting lost. But oh, no, no. Christianity today, preachers today, churches today, they won't tell you about the narrow path. They'll tell you about the four-lane highway. Do whatever you want to do. Go wherever you want to go. Be involved in whatever you want to be involved in. Get on that four-lane highway. Get on that expressway. Get on that turnpike. That's where Christians want to live today. Every morning I get up, when I'm getting ready, I, I, I never miss my Joel Olstein message in the Sunday morning. <laughs> I watch him every week. Believe it or not, I always pick up two or three things that, uh, that he's completely got out of whack, but you can clean them up and use them. But I sit there and I thought to myself, and they, they pan back, and there must be, what, 30,000, 40,000 people there? It's incredible. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> Give me one sermon there, and I'll empty that crowd faster than somebody <laughs> yelling fire. <laughs> the path that he, the road that he preaches to be on is so wide that everybody can get on it. He talked today about not looking through the glasses of judgment at people. And he talked about how that there's, there's, there's Buddhists here and there's Catholics here and there's all these people here. And when we all get to heaven, we're going to be how surprised that they're all there. And he was talking about God's mercy. And he laid out the widest swath of God's mercy that was nine interstates side by side. It was incredible. There isn't one negative thing about anything. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no judgment. Nobody sins anymore. It's just get on this big old super highway and we'll just go arm in arm singing Kumbala and go all the way down the road. Boy, you talk about clearing that place out. That'd be the highlight of my life, boy. <laughs> I'd take about six sermons and jam them together and boy, I'll tell you what, you exit that place. You know why? People don't want to hear it today. You don't want to, we don't want to relegate ourselves to that path. We don't. We want a wide swath where we can do whatever we want to do. We don't want any white lines to keep us between. We don't want any narrow stretch that we got to walk on. 
We want it wide. We want it paved. We wanted everything that we could ever want that is laid out. And we got a lot of latitude to go whatever way we want to go and believe whatever we want to leave. It's where we're at today. And when you get off that path, when you get off that path, you lose God's mercy and you lose God's truth. Remember one of the eight verses I gave you uh, the first uh, in the front of my Bible a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of them that I want to look at is Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it. The great controversy God had with his people, not the world, his people, his people, his people. He says, let mercy and truth not forsake thee. You bet it will. You'll still be saved, but you bet it will. And the first way is you get out from under God's protective hand. Now look at Israel. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now here's the controversy. Same problem we got today. One, because there is no truth. Two, because there is no, you say it, mercy. See that thing? And the third thing, no knowledge of God in the land. Now that was Israel in 606 B.C. That's Christianity Day in 2013. That's where we're at. They didn't have any truth. They lost their mercy because they lost the knowledge of God. And look what it, look what replaced it. Verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. That's what replaced it. In any nation, when they lose the word of God, verse 2 is where it goes. In your life, when you lose the word of God and you lose truth and mercy, that's where your life goes. I can't believe today how almost a week doesn't go by that some 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid doesn't kill his teacher. That he gets a gun and takes it to school or a knife and takes it to school, shoots his teacher, shoots other kids, stabs them, or somebody else goes in and kills a bunch of them, and we sit here and we talk about how terrible it is, and it is, and we talk about how tragic it is, and it certainly is. But don't you get it? Don't you get it? Don't you understand what he's saying? When you took the Word of God out of the public school system, this is what comes in. When you take God out, you can't have nativity scenes anymore, the Ten Commandments, or you can't pray before school starts like they did when I did, when it's a school, and you can't have some pastor get up at Easter and talk about Christ's resurrection. When you defy those things and take them out of the school, that's what comes in, the guns and knives and the shootings. Now, why can't you get that? I get it. But that's where it's at today. That's exactly where it's at today leaving God and his truth, and then lose the mercy of God in your life and to the lives of others. Now you do your own thing. You're outside the protection hand of God and his principles. Now you run with the evil man and the strange woman, and they're your guide. And remember, her house ends at death in chapter 2. Now you ruin your life, your family, your children. Now the preservation factor of God's mercy and truth are now gone. You face his chastisement. That's where we're at today. And you lose everything you have. You know, did you ever stop one time and consider the things as a Christian that we can lose when we get off the path? I mean, it talks about let not truth and mercy forsake thee. 
But did you ever stop and put a pencil to it? The things that you and I as a Christian, once we get off that path and do our own thing, the things that you and I as a Christian can lose without ever losing your salvation? You can lose your wife. You can lose your husband. You can lose your kids. You can lose your mind. You can lose your health. You can lose your ministry, your money. You can lose your Bible. When I preached before, when you lose your Bible, there's seven things compounding that you lose when you lose your Bible. It hasn't even got anything to do with what I'm preaching this morning. Now you lose your assurance of your salvation. Now you lose your power. Now you lose your fellowship. Now you lose your ability to make right choices. Now you lose your understanding. Now you lose your discretion or your discernment. Now you lose your witness. Now you lose your testimony. Now you lost your good friends. Now you lost your church. Now you've lost your joy. Now you've lost your prayer life. Man, there was a boatload of things that you can lose without ever losing your salvation. And it all comes when you get off that path. It all comes when God's truth and mercy forsake you. And you get into the hand of the evil man and the strange woman, and they start being, hey, either God is going to be the leader in your life or the world is. It isn't going to be a mixture of the two. And we like to think that. Well, I'm not quite out of fellowship today. I'm not quite in. No, you're either in or you're out. Well, me and God are just kind of at odds. No, no, no. And who is not with me is against me. You're either 100% wrapped up in his arms or you're as far away as you could ever get. That's what Gentiles do. We play those games in our mind. Now, the second aspect. Now you've lost truth. And you've lost your way. And you're off the path. And now you lose not only the mercy that God has for you and is protecting you, but now you lose your mercy for others. Now your family goes to hell. And you don't care. Your mom and slips out into eternity without Christ. Your dad slipped out into eternity without Christ. Your aunt slipped out into eternity without Christ. And you never say a word to them. Now your kids wind up in a lake of fire. Now your neighbors, your friends, your associates die one by one. And you don't think twice about what God saved you for and that you should have witnessed to them. You've lost your mercy. You've lost your mercy. You've lost any, any trace of what you feel for anything in their life. And I realize that, uh, uh, that uh, there's people in your family and people in you're going to work with that you're never going to win to Christ. We talked about it Thursday night. And I told you it's not your responsibility to win anybody to Christ, but it is your responsibility to be a witness to them. And every Christian out of witness. Do you hear what I said? Every Christian out of witness. Now, if I don't get a good amen this next time, I'm going to walk down one by one. Every Christian out of witness. Amen. And sometimes you should even use words. It's the ornaments on the inside. <clears throat> it's not what you say or I say that people look at. They look past that and they see, does it really work for him? Does it really work in his family? Does it really work in his marriage? Does it really work in that person and what they say? I hear what they say, but does it really line up? That's what it's really about as far as your witness is concerned. It's the adorning on the inside, not the outside. That was my point of going through that laborious process that we as Gentiles, we, we do everything on the outside to get a message out. 
and we actually take it down into Christianity and think that we can do the same thing to get a message out about Christ. No, no. Now, it may work for a deist. It may work for this guy. It may work for uh, Eddie Bauer. It may work for North Face, and it may work for whatever, but it will not work for the Christian life. It, it has to come from the inside. That adorning has to be what you inner man is dressed like, what he's wearing today. Now you've lost truth. You lost your way. Truth and mercy have forsaken you. And now, here you are. You're cold. You're indifferent. You're self-centered. Life's all about you. You're selfish. You're miserable. You're self-absorbing. You're worthless. Ever see anybody like that that claims to be a Christian? The most miserable people you ever saw in your life. Nothing positive ever comes out of their mouth. Only negative comes out of their mouth because it all comes back that they lost any ability to have truth or mercy in their life. It's gone. They lost it. They've been on that other path for so long. Somebody said one time, and it's so true, where the liberal preacher speaks of love with no truth, the conservative, the fundamentalist speaks of truth but has no love. Boy, that is so true. People ask me all the time, what kind of church do you have? And I said, well, we just got a Baptist church. And they said, are you, a, are you a fundamentalist? And I said, no, I'm not a fundamentalist in the sense that you're thinking of a fundamentalist. He said, well, you're not a fundamentalist? Why not? If I thought most Baptists were fundamentalists. I said, no, I'm not a fundamentalist. I found a long time ago fundamentalists stand for three things. Most people who say they're fundamentalists, they have no fun. They preach a lot of damn, and they're all mental. <laughs> fun, damn, mentalist. I'm not part of that. <laughs> I'm a Bible believer. He goes, are you an independent Baptist church? Absolutely not. I've seen the independent Baptist churches and exactly what they become, independent of everything, including God. We are a dependent Baptist church. We trust the book and God for everything we got. We're Bible believers. We're Bible believers. See, Proverbs is the balance in our life. It brings us to those places and gives us what we need. You see, the Christian life and the victory of, of an ongoing, is an ongoing process, the overcoming of 1 John. It takes work. It takes determination. It takes patience. It takes self-discipline. It takes self-control. It takes self-denial. It takes structure in our lives. It takes consistency. It's no wonder that some of God's people can't I mean, can't get anywhere. I mean, it requires a steady diet of spiritual truth and application of that truth in your heart and your mind. If some of God's people ate physically like they do spiritually, they'd die in a month. This is why so many people can't ever get back. They get to that point of no return. And they bury themselves and get swallowed up to the point that it's just impossible uh, for them. Remember now, repentance is not only turning from something, but turning to something. And yet, uh, it's just like everything. It's so simple. I don't know how many times I've told somebody this out of, a, out of a point of frustration. I said, you know what? If you spend as much time with God as you do with the devil, you'd be a great witness for God. I've told him, if you, if you drank in the Bible by the same rate of consumption, you drink the booze, you'd be another Billy Sunday. If you would have bathed your flesh in Bible principles as much as you bathed your flesh in the drug world, why, you'd be something else for God today. If you'd hung out with God's people as much as you hang out with the devil's people, why, you'd set the world on fire for God. But you see, they won't because they wouldn't, and now they can't. And there's nothing anybody's going to do about it. Uh, you, you have to do the work. The evil man and the strange women have got you off that path. You're on a four-lane highway now. And it's destroyed you inside and out. 
You see, now the message of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, is real clear. The wise son will not forget the law, and in his heart he will keep his commandments. He'll bind them around his neck, and they hang down over his heart. And that's a picture of the will of man and the heart of man. When he does those four things, and he addresses those and applies those to his attitude, the inner man, then God returns seven things to us, and through those seven principles, God will take our lives and use us, but also preserve us and our families in that unbroken chain. It never ceases to amaze me how simple Christianity really is and how complicated the evil man and the strange woman always want to make it. We make life so much harder than it really is by the terrible decisions that we make or we allow in our families. And then that compounding effect of those principles only get worse as time goes on. And we play right into the plan of the evil man and the strange woman. You've got to remember, God has a plan that he wants to enact in your life to use you. And the devil has a plan that he wants to enact in your life to stop you from being used of God. And it's whatever one you play into. You stay on the path of a rightness, that narrow path, you're good to go. You get off that path and you're now divided as a great big highway where you can do whatever you want to do. Then you got problems. Well, let me close by saying this. In any given situation, there's always something that a person can do. I'm not saying by anything that I've said in the last couple of weeks that when I say you get to the point of no return, I'm not saying that you get to the point where God is not willing to do something for you. But I have told you that for God to do anything for you, you must begin to do it yourself. Till you're willing to come to church, I can't help you. Till you're willing to put the Bible into your life, I can put a thousand people with you. The devil will undo everything that we try to do. You have to make the choice that you're going to turn your life around and you're going to get where God's people are, where the Word of God is, and get fed. And you're going to have to start digesting the Word of God internally, just like you would digest all the physical things of this life externally. And an evil man and a strange woman has seduced you, they betrayed you, and they deceived you. And uh, the problem uh, becomes that uh, you wait too long. You reach a point where the issues are so many and your flesh is so out of control that you can't do what you need to do. You've been deceived. You've been destroyed. You've been seduced. That's why she's likened to a harlot in the Proverbs chapter uh, 2. We'll see it again in chapter 5 and chapter 7. Now you're stuck and you can't get out. My advice to anybody in that situation that I've given 100,000 times is right now, get out. Make the break while you still can. Don't play with this thing and pretend you're going to be okay. Don't say to yourself, I know when to stop. Don't say to yourself, well, I'm going to wait till I have a child. Don't say to yourself, I'm going to wait till I get married. Don't say to yourself, well, I'm going to wait till I get my education. Don't say to yourself, there'll be some time down the road. Right now, I'm enjoying my life too much. Don't go there. The moment you go there, you've been deceived. That Two or three years is all the time it takes. When you look at the New Testament, it took three and a half years for God to prepare his people. Three and a half years to him prepare his people to be the 12 apostles that would change the world. It doesn't take the devil much longer than that in your life. You give him that time and you'll never get back. 
you giving that time, and by that time, your life will be so complicated. You'll have a girl pregnant, or you'll be pregnant, and you'll have this, and you'll have this complication, and now you want to break out, but you can't because the bozo that has your child now is still out here and doing drugs, and you're linked to a child. It just gets complicated and complicated and complicated. You got your phone filled up with all your drug guys, and you try to get rid of them, and they keep calling you on the phone. It just keeps getting you and getting you. You go here, and you want to stop drinking, but your buddies all drink, and you hang out with them, and you're afraid if you don't drink with them, they'll think you're a son. So you have one, and it starts all over again. That's how it works. My advice is right now, get out. Make the break while you still can. Protect your neck and your heart with the promises and the principles of the Word of God. The greatest single tool that God ever gave you was this church, any church that believed the Bible. It's the tool shed. Along these walls, you see all kinds of stuff up. What you can't see is all the tools hanging up there. We got dump truck drivers here. We got carpenters here. We got pipe fitters here. We got plumbers here. We got electricians here. And I'm not talking about in a physical sense. I'm talking about people who are now to clean out your pipes, wire you upright, get you cleaned out, and get you going, spiritually speaking. But you have to decide, I want to do that. And until you decide, I got to change and I'm going to be here, It'll be the ongoing saga of your life. You'll never finish anything you start, and this evil man and the strange woman will destroy you in time, and then it will come upon your life. There will come upon your life where you get so down and so out. There'll come upon your life where you lose your family, you lose your friends, you lose this, you lose your job, you lose everything you got, and you'll ask yourself the question, what's life worth living for? Well, I may answer that honestly. Life without God is not worth living for. But the alternative is too tragic because it's dying and going to hell. My advice to you, get out of that lifestyle, get off that four-lane highway, get back on that path, and be calm and do what God wants you to do. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Alfonso.